I do want to credit as well the Lander kids who were vigilant in uh, reminding me whenever I was to be done with my five-minute segments. Uh, except for one, I did get this uh, text from Zach at the end of last week's service, Sunday at 11 o'clock at night. Forgot to turn off the timer for your sermon. Last point is running over by 11 hours and 42 minutes, Dad. You might want to wrap it up. So with that, we, we, we do want to sort of keep in mind all five of the points need to run about five minutes. So that, that, that should be helpful. But I'm going to take a little bit to get to that first of those five points. I have about a half an hour introduction. And then we'll do five. Like I said, blame the elders last week. If you weren't here, uh, you can find the message online. Um, but here's what we said about Ephesians chapter 1. Verses, or chapter 2 and chapter 3. We summed up those first, that first section with this phrase, God's glory and grace magnified in our salvation point us to the all-encompassing plan of God to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus. This mysterious plan hidden in ages past is revealed to the world in his visible church so that we as his bride, body, and temple and show them that nobody in the world fulfills their plans like God. I think for me, I had read those three chapters before last Sunday, which probably is a comfort to you. Um, but I think one of the things that hit me on a fresh reading of them was just how global, universal, really, God's plans are. When I think about getting saved, I sometimes just think about the guilt that I have from how I've failed God, the consequences of that guilt, and the fact that God has uh, removed those and then replaced them with things that I didn't deserve, a, a relationship with him when I was an enemy of his, a friendship, really, a place at a table in his kingdom, which is just really amazing. And yet, when I read 1, 2, and 3, I, I got, and I hope you got a sense of this last week, that this what God's doing is far bigger than just something in Darren's life. And certainly, we're grateful that it's far bigger than what he's doing within our, our church. But he is doing something within us, and that feels big to me. And he's doing something here, and that, that feels big to me. But the reason that I have confidence that he can deal with the things that feel big inside me, or what sometimes feel like big problems around here, is that the scope of his work isn't limited to me or to here. He's at work across everything he created to reconcile all of it to himself. So he's working in big ways, sustaining everything that he made and wrapping it up at the end of time in such a way that nothing is out of sync with God. Well, then I feel a little bit better about the stuff that still feels kind of incomplete in my life or the ways that we still need to mature as a church. And I kind of hope that you got that same sense because the good news is we're about to start chapter four with a therefore. In other words, Paul's going to transition. He's going to pivot us and say, boy, I just told you a lot, right? And in light of that, as a prisoner of the Lord, which is really an odd identification for him to use for himself. Did you notice that whenever Jess was reading? He says in the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a 
prisoner for the Lord, which if I were Paul, that's not the way that I would write this. I, prison, or I Paul, an apostle of the Lord. I, Paul, author of half the future New Testament. I, Paul, the guy who took care of you for a really long time. I, I mean, I'd, I'd be pointing to all those things that I'd want on my resume. Paul says, instead, I'm a prisoner. And right out of the gate, the good news is, and the bad news is, that if you're going to take up the commands that largely make up more of the second half of the book than the first half of the book, there's no guarantee for how your life's going to turn out. So I got I to gotta remove that potential promise you feel is right there from the very beginning because we all want to do that to God, don't we? I'll do my part as long, God, as you make sure everything works out great in my life. I'll obey as long as you bless. And there's, there's a lot of that. There's... Wisdom that God gives us that makes our lives better. There's obedience that largely brings life rather than death. But the promise that everything's going to work out according to my calculus is not the promise of Ephesians. And it's certainly not the promise Paul begins with because he wants to let us know that every one of these commands he's writing, he's writing from prison. How's your best life working out, Paul? It's actually working out great. I just happen to be in prison while I'm able to exhort you for what God's doing within his kingdom. And if we go back, as we will next week, and we revisit the life of Jesus in depth, we'll find actually that that's the message of Christ as well. We don't get to take up our mansions and follow Jesus. We don't get to take up our fat wallets and follow Jesus. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. We hear him, we see him, we benefit from him kneeling down and washing our feet. And then we hear him get up and say, here's your towel, here's your basin. Now you go do the same thing. Paul's going to appeal to us as a prisoner for the Lord. And he gives us this one main command. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And if you heard just reading from Deuteronomy, you know that's not Paul's first like, he didn't invent this analogy. Remember the whole cycle of death in the Old Testament? Sin enters the world. We hear about this story. This guy lives. He has a kid. He dies. This guy lives. He has a kid. He dies. This guy lives. He had a kid. He dies. And all of a sudden, we come to the story of Enoch. And Enoch, though he has kids, he does something different. It says he walks with God, and then he's no more because God took him. It... It brings us the possibility of something that God did with Adam and Eve in the garden to walk with them in the cool of the day. And Enoch breaks this cycle of death, or God breaks this cycle of death through Enoch, partially because he walks with God, which is the way that Noah is later described. It's the way that then in Deuteronomy, when Moses is about to give his large farewell to the the second generation of, of Israelites, he says, I want you to walk with the Lord. It's what God's inviting you to. And so Paul's not inventing this terminology. He's instead kind of rehashing something that's been a motif through the whole Old Testament. If you believe everything that I just said, and boy, if we believed everything that he just said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, how differently would we think? Paul says, I want to show you how differently you would live if you really thought that everything that I just said was true. And it would be marked by this walk with the Lord that you'd have. 
It's not the only place in verse 1 that he says that. He revisits it in verse 17. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why? Because you've been given renewed minds. He says in chapter 5, I want you to imitate God. You're beloved children of his, so walk in love. He has loved you, then you love that out. That's the way you imitate God. You walk with renewed minds. You walk with renewed motivations. Uh, He says in chapter 5, verse 8, at one time you were in darkness, but now you're, you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Later he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise. In other words, Paul's not just giving us this one motif. He's saying if you actually embrace this idea, think of everything that I just said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Think about how you could then pursue something different than you've been pursuing, which is what the whole metaphor of walking is. It's not where you stand. It's not where you camp. It's where you're going, which is why the title of the sermon is where we're going and how we'll get there. Now, let's try to sum up verses or chapters four through six, much like we did with Ephesians one, two, and three. We might say it also in two sentences. The glorious, mysterious, and all-encompassing plan of God compels each believer to pursue a lifestyle that eagerly maintains the unity God infused among us and that actively deploys our diverse talents to build God's church. This lifestyle rejects past moral, relational, and sexual ignorance while deferring to what is best for others in any relationship because we are both filled with and clothed by the presence and might of God himself. There are probably better ways of summing up Ephesians 4 to 6. That was was my attempt. But just in that, I feel enough that makes me want to dive through this book with you. Uh, But we're going to do it a little bit differently this week. And get ready for your five-minute timer here, Zach. We're going to look at five lies. Five lies that I think we often believe that another thorough reading of these three chapters will somehow kind of undo within us and among us. Here's the first lie. Timer. First lie is this. The unity that God creates in his church should be effortless to preserve. And he undoes that lie by telling us, as a prisoner for the Lord, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, these are the kinds of phrases and the kinds of verses that like get read at weddings or they get Pinterested, right? Or they get put on plaques and hung in living rooms and things like that. But they're really indicting verses if you think about them. Because I don't need to tell you right now to breathe because you're just doing it. I don't need to probably command you. When you go out of here, it would probably be a good idea for you to eat a meal over the next 48 hours because you're probably going to do that. The reason, though, that I need to be told that humility, gentleness, patience, are necessary as I try to love and bear with others is that I don't want to do that. Humility is not natural like breathing. And gentleness in my tone and patience with others don't come as naturally as eating. Those aren't the desires that rise up within me. 
I'm an arrogant dude, and I get harsh and impatient and critical. And I sometimes like finding all the reasons that you're different and lesser than I am. And sadly, that should be enough to disqualify me as a pastor, but the real truth is we wouldn't be able to find a pastor to replace me if we were to use that criterion. Instead, though, I need to hear that I am to walk differently than what comes naturally to me, and I need to be reminded that there's one body, one spirit, just as I was called to one hope that belongs to my call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, who's over all and through all and in all. And if I remember that, then I'm not sure I'm all that better than you. I'm not sure that my ideas are so much more superior to yours. And I'm really not all that offended whenever you, you sort of find reasons not to follow me at my pace because there's a lot more similar about us because of what God has built into us and done among us he's made us one body and he's given us one spirit we're called to the same hope we have the same faith the same Lord the same baptism the same God and the same father and he's doing something as I just remembered from chapters one two and three that's so much bigger and apparently this unity though means I need to eagerly guard it, maintain it, preserve it, protect it. There are realities God's created in the church that we're not supposed to just take and throw into some, you know, box and toss up into the attic and say, well, I hope it's okay up there. If God's done everything that he's done to give us this unity in the church, then the lie we need to reject is that God creates this unity, but it should be effortless to preserve this unity. Instead, I need to be eager to maintain this unity. Because look what it cost. It cost a victory on Christ's behalf. Grace, verse 7, was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and it uses this kind of military parade after a great battle. When he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This referencing the Old Testament is talking about the victory that Christ had and the fact that having been triumphant, he now gives grace to his church. In other words, the very fact that I have everything I've enjoyed in this church, it cost Jesus a bloody battle. It cost him a great victory, and it meant, as he points out in verses 9 and 10, that he needed to descend into the lower regions, the earth, and he then, having descended, also ascends far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Christ not only fought a bloody battle, he won that bloody battle. And because of that, what I get out of that battle ought to be precious to me. And one of the things is that we are one church with one Lord and one faith and one hope. And if you find it discouraging sometimes that it's tough to be a member of a church, well, then join with centuries of believers who have also found it difficult but nothing worth doing isn't tough. This is sort of the point of premarital counseling. You love each other, right? Oh, yes. You're enamored with each other, right? Oh, yes. Great. Those feelings will exist for the rest of your relationship. 
If that's the way you define your relationship, your relationship will not last. And therefore, I'm right, your feelings will last as long as your relationship does. However, your relationship isn't based just on those feelings. It's going to get tricky. But marriage is worth it. The family God is going to build for you is worth it. Nobody would discourage a young couple who's finding some difficulty and say, wow, this is hard. Oh, man, you probably shouldn't do this. And yet we somehow come into church life with the lie that this should be effortless to maintain the unity that Christ purchased. That's a lie. Let's reject it. Six minutes. I got four on the next point. The next point, the next lie, is that the unity that God creates in his church also creates uniformity in its members. The idea that God gives these gifts to believers within the church is unpacked both historically and in the present when he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One body, right? One body growing to maturity together, which means you should measure whether you're valuable based on whether you're like me, right? Because of this unity that we have. That's the lie. Packed within this long statement about what God is doing in maturing his body so that it grows up. It isn't childlike, like little kids floating about in inner tubes, having no idea how to navigate the dangers of the waters of this world. We're growing up and we're becoming skillful in the way that we're thinking together, but you aren't enough by yourself to do that. And you ought not measure somebody else's maturity based on how much they imitate you and your way of thinking altogether. Instead, there are different roles, apostles, verse 11, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And there are different body parts all the way down to verse 16 so that each part is working properly and making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me give you one test for whether or not you buy into this lie or you reject it and buy into what Paul's saying. When somebody disagrees with you, do you ask questions or make assumptions? When somebody says something that you've been trained to think is wrong, do you ask questions about what they mean or do you make assumptions? Do you know that when they use a word, they mean exactly what you mean by that word? When they say something about where they've come from, do you assume that if you had walked that same road, you would have done so much better than they would have done navigating their past? If you do, I just want to submit it's possible you're buying into this lie thinking that the unity Christ creates in his church also creates uniformity in its members, but that's just so not true. Go back to the marriage analogy. How many times 
have young couples had to come to the admission that they're not exactly alike. And in fact, sometimes not being exactly alike drew them to this person in the first place and then exasperates them about them right afterward. I love this about you. I hate this about you. It's the same thing. Make up your mind. I don't know what to say. If that's true in marriage, which is kind of a a lesser commitment, God doesn't say he's going to reform the world through marriage. He says he's going to reform the world through the church. So how much more should we expect that to be true in a body where it's not just two people, but it can be 20, it can be 40, 60, 100? Of course you need to ask questions when you don't understand what someone's saying. Or if you assume that you understand what someone's saying, you need to ask questions so that you can undo that assumption that you fully get what they're saying. Much more to be said about it. Much we've actually said in the past as well. So let's move on to the third lie. And I don't care how we're doing for time, but how are we doing? I was at four minutes. All right. <laughs> lie number three has four parts, and there's no way that I'm going to. <laughs> lie number three will take 10 minutes, I believe. But Paul gets to verse 17 and rekindles the walking analogy and says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them due to the hardness of their hearts. Remember, when Paul talks about people in this category, he's also talking about your past life. The Gentiles, who Paul is describing in the present, are the believers of this church in their past. And as the Spirit is addressing you from his word, he is talking about people outside the church who don't think through redeemed and renewed minds, but he's also talking about you the way you used to be before you were renewed. But he's also talking about the temptation for you to revert to that person in the present. Which is why he says, you must no longer walk that way. That way is driven largely by ignorance. And Paul makes a short little statement about them in verse 18. It's an indicting one to be sure. But the main thing that he says that we're going to unpack in four different parts, I think we can kind of see today. Maturity means I'm free to do whatever I feel like doing. That's one way of summing up why the world is off track today. Why most of the world's solutions, untethered from the kingdom of God, lead to death and destruction rather than to life and to blessing. But that's that's not the way it works. In fact, we could see this lie kind of unpacked in the first version of itself. The lie sounds like this. The grace that God gives to his church grants us moral freedom to live as we feel. It, It doesn't actually do that. Listen instead to what Paul says. They, these Gentiles in the present, and you in your past, have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way, verse 20, you learned Christ. 
Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and corrupt through deceitful desires, and then to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul gives an example in verse 19 of one way that this lie about freedom impacts the world. Whatever I feel sensually, I should be free to do. And anybody who's trying to tell me otherwise is oppressing me or to use any of our, our current vernacular about this stuff. It buys into a lie that the church can actually buy into as well. We would phrase it this way. The grace God gave us gives us the ability to do whatever we want. And if you remember through Romans, how did Paul answer that? By no means. What is wrong with you people? He freed you from it. Why would you run back to it? He's making a similar point here. That's the old way of thinking, but that's not what you're free to. You're you're free to all this other stuff. Everything about that is slavery. You don't want to go back there. The lie number one is that we should be granted moral freedom to live as we want. Lie number two, and boy, this one really has taken root in the church. Because we want to be authentic. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to let people know just how I'm doing and what's going on in my gut. So the lie is that the grace of God gives to his church, grants us also verbal freedom to live as we feel. Listen to Paul, address that one. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But... Be angry and don't sin. Try that one on for size. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul addresses our words. He deals with actions that usually flow from we are, what we articulate, and he goes back to what's in our hearts, what Jesus said is where our words come from in the first place. And across the board, whether he's talking about our words and where they originate or our words and where they lead us, he denies this lie that the grace of God gives us moral freedom to live as we, or sorry, verbal freedom to live as we feel. In the kingdom of God, you don't get to just say whatever you want. Unless it's in a category of confession and not boasting. Confession is actually saying what's going on inside us, but it's confessing that it's out of line with the kingdom and its values. We can be honest about where we are so that we may repent from it and then move forward. Don't be a hypocrite. Speak honestly about what's going on inside of you so you can reject it and so that you can get at the root of bitterness. Verse 31, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. And so that what you talk about will lead you into the kind of life that's productive rather than thieving. 
God's grace is to transform us morally. It's to transform us verbally. And if we move on to chapter 5, verse 1, it's to transform us sexually. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, and verse 1 and 2 are why sexual immorality is a big deal. It's world. The word can't make up their minds about the church and sex, can they? Half the time they're like, why do you Christians make such a big deal about sex? And half the time I'm like, I'm not talking about it. You are. But then the other half of the time, they want to make a huge deal out of it. And they're wondering why we won't kind of get on the table with everything that needs to be permissive and their current, their current sort of ethic of life. The reason that sexuality is a big deal and that sexual immorality is destructive to the kingdom of God is because of verses 1 and 2. Paul says, verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not be named among you as is proper for the saints because those who give in to impurity and immorality that's sexual in nature are at their heart consumers. They look and say, what will I take from this world? What will I take from her? What will I take from him? And how can I consume them for myself? And Paul says, instead, walk in love, people. Verse 1 and 2, imitate God. He loved you. He didn't consume you. He provided for you. He poured himself out for you. He gave himself up for you so that you could be fragrant and you could please God. If he did that for you, sex shouldn't be corrupted among you. Use your sexual impulses to bless the appropriate person in your life. A partner with whom you've covenanted, like God made a covenant with you. Not somebody that just in this moment you can use for your own pleasure. That kind of immorality and impurity and covetousness shouldn't even have a name among you. So no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you can be sure of this. Everybody who's sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, let me take the teeth out of verse 5. I'm kidding. I'm not going to because it's there. If you're dabbling with sex sins, be aware of the reality of verse 5. This isn't fitting. This isn't the way Christians live. And if you have to square up with your life and look yourself in the mirror, that's the thing to say to yourself. This isn't the way a Christian lives. Next point's yours. But I'm a Christian, therefore I won't live this way. Or I'm going to live this way and therefore I'm not a Christian. I don't see any other options coming out of verse 5. But I know that I get to be a part of a church that regularly repents. I know I get to be a part of a community where there's accountability and there's help for those that are struggling. And I'm grateful to be a part of that kind of a church because everybody who gives in to sexual immorality, everybody who gives in to impurity, everybody who unrepentantly is covetous towards others and who has just granted themselves a current status of the Old Testament sin of idolatry doesn't belong in the kingdom of God and that should be scary. 
and in saying that Paul refutes the lie that the grace of God gives to his church sexual freedom to live as we feel. He does not. But we're free to repent. Last lie starts in verse 6. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil, and church, the days are evil. Whether they're more evil than ancient days is debatable. There are always cycles and there are always trends and there are always times when societies more reflect the values in the kingdom and less reflect the values. And I'd say we're on a downturn. That those who would stand up for things that the Bible says are true are mocked and they are mocked thoroughly and we can just expect probably more of it. I don't see an upturn coming anytime soon. And I have tried to be very careful in our church that we not make political alliances that more align us with a political party than with a kingdom of God. But I will say those who belong to the kingdom of God ought to say what's wrong with society. And those are discussions in the church that require judgments and assumptions and separation. Maybe, but they're discussions in the church that require questions and more questions and conversation before we come to the point of division and judgment and separation. Let's get better at that. We're doing, we're doing well, and we'll try to create more context for this into the future, but let's do better at the questioning and the spurring so that we can become an exposing church, so that we can become a church that is given over to this, this lack of partnership with a dark world, but instead wants to shine. Shine to your family, shine here in this neighborhood, shine online, shine wherever the Lord has placed us. Let's not give in to the idea that we ought to buy into the ethics of this world because the last lie is that the grace God gives us grants us ethical freedom to live as we see, feel. Morally, verbally, sexually, ethically, we're to be different. And we're freed to be different, which is what freedom is all about. Now, no idea how I did on that one. 13 minutes. I have two minutes for the next point. Let's move on, which is not going to happen either. The fourth lie is this. The spirit that God supplies to his church shows up primarily through our individual gifts. And this is one for our charismatic roots, probably. Because we're going to read in verse 18 that we are to be filled with the Spirit. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Interestingly, the one spot in the New Testament that talks in a present tense way about the filling, saturating, baptizing work of the Spirit. Oftentimes, he looks back at what happened to you in the past and says you had a relationship with God through his Spirit where you were washed, you were cleaned, you were baptized, you were saturated, sort of this, this sort of water analogies. Or he can at times use sort of fire and consuming analogies to describe the Spirit, but here he's talking about a water one. It's just in this case, he's talking about it in the present tense. So that no believer can presently say, oh, I was filled with the Spirit back then, and so I'm good. The reality of Ephesians 5 verse 18 is that the filling that God provides for us is to be not so much like something that happened once before, but the question of a sponge in a bucket of water. Is the sponge in the bucket? Yep. Is the water in the sponge? Yep, that's the way your life with God is meant to be. And it's meant to be so in a continual way. So that when you sort of come up out, the water's in you and it's sort of dripping on others and you're back in and you're filled up again. Here's how you'll know that that happens. You're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're giving thanks, which is what the ladies talked about at the the breakfast there yesterday. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to spend all of our time thinking about addressing and singing and giving thanks, but Paul doesn't. Those things are all true. But the primary emphasis in Ephesians 4 through 6 on what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, much like if I were to say, I walked from here to the shed in the back of our property, running and skipping and turning cartwheels. I went from here back there. Some of the times I ran, some of the times I skipped, and some of the times I turned cartwheels. That's the way this sentence happens. Be filled with the Spirit, inging the process. Sometimes addressing, sometimes singing, sometimes giving, and, verse 21, sometimes submitting. Paul's going to use that phrase in verse 21 to begin talking to us for a while as husbands and wives, as parents and children, and as employees and employers. It's interesting to notice what he does. He addresses categories that elsewhere he seemed to say didn't exist. You notice that? Paul says, hey, you're the master, you're the slave. I thought Paul said that there's no slave and no free. In one manner of thinking, there isn't. There's no ranking in the kingdom of God. God doesn't have better seats for masters than he does for slaves. I thought you said, Paul, that there's no male and female in Christ. In in one sense, that's true. There's no ranking in the kingdom of God. Your parents aren't going to have a better seat at the table of God than you will as their kids, even though you're called to honor them. So in one sense, everything's flattened at the foot of the cross. It's true. But the other thing Paul doesn't do is to destroy societal sort of constructs that still are in existence. He reforms them, but he doesn't destroy them. It's an interesting kind of paradigm to keep in mind when we're thinking about things today because we live in a society that would destroy everything that seems to exist as a tool that God uses in building his kingdom. 
God uses the relationship between kids and their parents. God uses the family structure. God uses the way we're supposed to kind of exist within society's framework of who's got wealth, who doesn't have wealth, who has power, who doesn't have power. Those things doesn't, don't seem to get destroyed by Paul, but they do radically get transformed. And across the board, the lie is that the Spirit of God primarily shows up in our lives through our individual gifts. Instead, Paul talks about the relational ways that the Spirit of God shows up. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Here's what it should mean. It should mean that you are submitting or deferring or giving preference to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit submit in everything to their husbands. Go down to verse 32. He says, this is a profound, profound mystery, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives, let me ask you one question. Not of anyone else, but I'll just lay it where Paul lays it. When you look at your life, do you see that you respect your husband? Is that what Paul says should happen? Do you see that there is a submission, a deferring, a preferring that looks like your attempt to respect your husband? And let me just confess, for all husbands, we're not all that respectable. So apparently, this passage can't be rooted in the value of the husband, which is Paul, why Paul says it feels so mysterious, profoundly mysterious, that huh, the way you treat him, it says something watching everybody see your life. I, I could relate to God like that. You've done that so beautifully. And he doesn't even deserve it. But God does. And when I watch you, I just, I want to honor him. I want to submit to him. Ladies, when you look in the mirror, is that what you see? Guys, you are called from verse 21 to, because you're filled with the Spirit in verse 18, you are also to submit out of reference for Christ, and you're to do so in this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And in loving the church, he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame, blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Whoever's loving his wife is loving himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're all members of his body. Therefore, quoting the Old Testament, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, to quote the same verse I pointed back to before, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Husbands, how do you look when you're supposed to look in the mirror and see a sacrificial savior? So glad Brandon's here. Remember, you remember the time we were in a small group together? 
I asked the question, what's the definition of a husband? What's the definition of a wife? First part we looked at, we were in this verse and we were in First Peter. And I said, so all women are supposed to submit to all men, right? And everybody said, yes. And I was like, oh my goodness, guys, come on, let's read the passage. Husbands and wives, not all men and all women. Okay, so get some context here. And then I asked, so what's the definition of a husband? What's the definition of a wife? And Brandon, my favorite definition of a husband ever, he says, it looks like the husband is the one who dies. Well said, brother. So how's your perpetual death going, Brandon? We'll talk about that later. I'll tell you how mine's going. Guys, when you look in the mirror, do you see a sacrificial savior? Because the world can't see him. He's not here, but he has placed his spirit in you to be the picture of him so that when people watch the way you treat your wife, they say, oh, if, if, if there was a God like that, I would give myself to him. I, I, I don't do the best job. I seek to do better. But what it does right out of the gate is it asks a question, particularly in a very patriarchal society where the husband has the power, the husband has the influence, the question and the principle that seems to be laid out in marriage that will be repeated for parents and for employers is this. If you have power, do you use it for you? Or if you have power, do you use it to serve? Now watch the principle play out with parents and children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, ensure the obedience of your children at all costs, because you're worth it, doggone it. No! Parents, with the power that you've been given, what are you to do? Well, let's talk to fathers. Don't provoke, but bring up. Do you hear the absolute lack of entitlement to use parental power for parental comfort? Just like a husband is not given his power and his authority to use his life for his service so that everybody, either his kids or his wife, serve him. And guys, if you're doing that, you're lying about God. You are a blatant lie about God if you've set up your home so that dad gets served because that's not Jesus, that's not God. Instead, children, yes, defer, yes, honor because there's a blessing in it. But dads, don't provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Who's got the power? Ah, it better be the one who's serving. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether as a bond servant or free. In other words, verses six, or sorry, five through eight, really doesn't matter how great your boss is. Jesus is your boss. And so when you've received an assignment, fulfill it for your boss. Defer and serve, obey. The submitting, obeying motif really is there. Those without power are to, to respect the structure that is around. But to do it, remembering the ultimate power isn't your boss. It's your boss's boss. It's the one who's really in charge. Masters are supposed to acknowledge that same thing. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and he doesn't rank you. There's no partiality with him. You get the principle? 
If you really think you're a spirit-filled church, you really think you are a spirit-filled individual, let me ask the question, how much are you using what you've got to defer for others? Or has the way of this world become so ingrained in your thinking that you think about your rights? You make sure that everybody else who's toxic gets out of you. You got to do whatever you do to take care of you. I'm just not sure that's a spirit-filled life, according to Paul. There are asterisks. There are ways that we ought to talk about and make sure that in this community and the people we affect, we're watching out for those who are being abused and we are looking to protect the vulnerable. But I'm preaching this passage. And this passage is saying, if you think the spirit is saturating you, this is one of the ways you really got to ask the question. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Turning to the last lie especially if any of the first four that we're trying to undo feel like there's something you can't accomplish or that you're just sort of feeling like, whoo, this is <laughs> one, two, and three. We're really encouraging. There's a lot here in four, five, and six that are just a little bit tougher. Well, let me address the last line. It's the one you might have bought into. You got to do this all on your own. Or written out the battle that God allows for his church must be fought with the weapons that we forge and we possess. The battle is just so very different than that, guys. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And let me just pause there and just say what happened. Walk, 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 stand. Walk, pursue, walk, pursue, walk, pursue, stand. It's an interesting change of the metaphor, isn't it? There's so much pursuit, so much activity, so much where are you going? How do you know if you're getting there the right way? Well, there are points at which we are simply called to hold our ground. So let's just for a second go back to those categories that were given. Do you have power at work or does somebody else have ultimate power? There's ground to be held there. Do you have a good relationship with your parents? Do you have a rough relationship? Do you have a good relationship with the kids? Do you have a rough relationship? There's ground to be held there. How are things going in the relationship between you and your spouse? There is ground to be fought and held there. And you don't have to do it on your own. Listen, I'm going to interrupt here for a second. Listen to Isaiah 59. Michael, I put this in the wrong spot, but if you can grab it. Isaiah 59, there's a ton of trouble all around Isaiah, and he sees it. And he said, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him there was no justice. And he saw there was no man. It's kind of a bleak situation. There's real problems. People are being oppressed, and nobody's going to come and rescue him. So what does he do? His own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What is the Lord doing? He's seeing a problem. He is wrapping himself with himself. (laughs) God doesn't need to go anywhere to find righteousness. It's him. He doesn't need to go anywhere to find salvation. He's the salvation his people need. In other words, God got up, got dressed, and got busy. That's what Isaiah 59 says. And in the ground that God is calling you to hold, you don't have to go get up, 
forge your own armor, find your own strength, figure out your own righteousness, and save yourself. The one who saved Israel in the past will clothe himself around you and wrap his strength around you so that what he possesses, you possess. Listen to the way Paul says it. Put on the whole armor of God, not Darren, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He says, put it on, verse 11. He says, take it up in verse 13, that you can be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What's this armor? Isaiah 59. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, not just true things, a God of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, not just the right things, a God of righteousness. And his shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by a gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, taking up a shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all supplication. His own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation on his head. You, You see what God's doing? He's giving you his clothes. I had something I needed to do and I got ready. And unlike Saul and David where the armor doesn't fit, this is God. The one who, if he fills you, is clothing you so that you're equipped to stand wherever he's placed you to stand. This isn't effortless, guys. And we're not all the same. We don't don't have freedom to do whatever we want. But at the end of the day, we're not alone. this This is where we're heading. This is where we're walking. But this is how we get there. That God himself says, I will fill you. And that God himself says, my might will protect you. Why? So that verse 18, we can be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then Paul deploys that exact point in his situation. I, the prisoner of the Lord, I need your prayers. I need your support. Because what does God call? He doesn't call the individual soldier out into battle, right? He's not David. I want Bathsheba. But she belongs to him. I know what to do. Take him, clothe him, arm him, and then step back from him. Leave him out there on his own. Of course he died. He was on his own. But that's not, that's not the portrait of what it looks like to be armed. It looks like to be armed and to join in an army. It looks like we have a shield that becomes part of a wall. We have armor that has us facing, that has us holding this ground together. That's Paul's portrait. And he's asking for help 
from his saints that though distant from him are on the battlefield next to him. So he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me so that words can be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I can declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so that you can know how I am, what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, he'll tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Why? Because you have to develop all the peace yourself and you have to get all the love yourself? No, these come from God the Father And the Lord Jesus Christ, as does the grace that we need that can be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Because one, two, and three are all about what God's doing. Four, five, and six is where we start getting busy and we start walking. And if any of this feels like stuff that's going to stumble you on the journey, let let me just remind you you're not alone in two ways. This church is meant to be the brothers and sisters on the battlefield with you but we're not meant to clothe you. You belong to the Lord. And if he's filled you, he's going to wrap himself with you. But you got to take it up and you got to put it on. I don't know entirely what that looks like for you, but you got to look yourself in the mirror and ask, am I forging my own weapons or am I clothing myself with what God provides? Seems like a question we should probably ask of each other over the next couple of weeks as well. So if you've got time, maybe take something that's come out of either Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, or chapters 4, 5, and 6, something where you've just been aware that as we were hearing the word of God, you were aware the spirit of God was actively at work. Maybe develop a question that somebody else could ask you, help you with, and stand alongside and raise up a shield of faith for you together so that we could stand this ground God's given us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that our plans, our purposes, though they often go astray, I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has a grand, sweeping, global, universal, timeless plan for your church and for this church. And so I pray, Lord, first in gratitude that you fill and equip and then diagnose and prepare us. So Lord, were your word is corrected us, I pray, would we turn and walk back toward you, pursue the life that God's provided for us. And Lord, I pray that where any feel distant in this church, that you would use some process, Lord, to stir them back and we could encourage one another together and not feel alone on this fight. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and we'll sing.